Welcome to episode number 200. Today we are going to be talking about soil health in your garden, why it is so important and ways that you can improve your soil and the things that you need to know about your soil in order to then improve them. But first, let me say welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. I'm your host, Melissa K. Norris, and I am so excited that you are here and that you guys, we just hit 200 episodes. That means that thank you, first off, for being a listener and helping us to reach this 200 episodes. And also that it means that there are a lot of folks like you and me, if you are listening, who really do care about preserving these traditional ways and moving towards a healthier and more self-sufficient society using things like modern homesteading to create a homegrown and handmade life. And I am so honored to be a part of your journey on that way and that you are listening and educating yourself and taking the steps to create a better life for you and your family. Because this is episode number 200, I have got some very special things in store. So I am doing a contest to get in on all of that. You're going to want to go to melissaknorris.com forward slash contest. One of the prizes that we're giving away And one of the entries is going to be making sure that you are subscribed to this podcast. So if you're listening via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, like whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts, make sure that you are actually subscribed to the podcast and then go over to mostkinors.com forward slash contest to enter the contest. And there's other ways that you can enter so you can get multiple entries. And I'm super excited. But let's talk prizes, okay? One of the things that I get asked probably the most is how people can get some of my family's heirloom bean seeds. So if you don't know, if you are a newer listener, you don't know the story, I will share it very quick and brief. But my family has been seed saving for over 100 years, over five generations, our own strain of heirloom Tar Heel Green pole beans. In addition to the Tar Heel Green Pole Bean. And the reason that we call them that is my dad with my grandparents in the early 1940s moved out here to Washington State in the Pacific Northwest where I live and was born and raised and still live grown up from North Carolina up in the hills of Appalachia in Avery County to be exactly. They brought two strains of bean seed with them that they have been growing and seed saving, like I said, generations back, many, many generations back. So that's the only name that they just always call them because it was from Tar Heel. They just said, these are our Tar Heel green pole beans. So that's why we call them that, just for a little bit of reference. But they're a great snap bean. So just like you would use any regular green bean. They do have a little bit different flavor, though. I like to say they're a little bit... They almost have a natural buttery flavor to them. And I feel like they're a little bit meatier. Like They just have more flavor than store-bought green beans. And not just like store-bought canned green beans, but even like, you know, Blue Lakes, I'm trying to think, Kentucky Wonders, like uh, different varieties of green beans that I've had. Um, They just don't have the same flavor. They have their own unique flavor. And it's really hard for me to describe, except it is amazing. (laughs) So hopefully I did it justice there. The other variety that we have, that same thing, my family's been seed saving for all of those generations back, is called an October bean. 
Now, this is a shelled bean, so we don't usually eat the green pod, though you could. We let them mature, and then we shell them out, and that is our dried bean. Once it's dried, obviously, it's our dried bean. And we call them an October bean because traditionally, that's when they're actually ready to harvest is the first part of October or the end of September, depending on where we live when our first hard frost comes in and then kills them. But usually, that's when they're mature enough, and we're doing the majority of the harvest on them. And I think they must be related to somewhere down the line. Very similar to like a cranberry bean. They are beautiful. The outside pod will is first green when it's immature. And then it becomes streaked with this maroon crimson color. And then as it fully matures, then the green part of the pod turns to a creamy color. And it still keeps those beautiful streaks of like scarlet through there. But the flowers themselves are not scarlet. The bean flower is white. So I don't think they're really related to a scarlet runner. I think that they're closer related to probably a cranberry bean. But then the inside bean, when you shell it out, is those crimson burgundy streaks, so pretty with cream. And so they're very large. We eat them similar to how you would do a pinto bean, but they're much bigger. I would say they are closer in size to probably a lima bean, but they look and taste similar to a pinto. That's the closest that I know to say. But it, again, I feel like the flavor is a greater flavor depth than just a pinto. And maybe I don't use the word meteor, which sounds weird when I'm talking about a vegetable, but it's really the only way I can think of to describe it. But they are excellent in chilies and soups or just doing soup beans where you throw in some ham hock or bacon and let that simmer bean soup. Oh, so good. They're like one of my absolute favorites. So and then even like just doing like baked beans or kind of like a barbecued bean with molasses. Just, oh my goodness. Okay, I'm getting hungry now, guys. But the whole reason I'm telling you about these beans, sorry, I said I was going to keep that bean story short and sweet, but when I get to talking about them, (laughs) I just have to tell the whole story. So part of the contest is normally you can only get that bean seed if you are a member of the Pioneering Today Academy in the springtime. And I send them out as a bonus to members along with our seed saving course. Now, part of the reason I do that is because I simply do not have enough stock to just sell them. To sell them in the state where I live involves quite a bit. Every year you have to have labs and certifications and all this stuff. And it's just not something we don't grow enough that I really want to deal with. So I can't sell them. I have people ask if I can just sell them some and I can't do that. And then I also usually only give these beans out as part of the academy, which is where one of the e-courses that we have inside the Pioneering Today Academy is our seed saving course so that people know how to grow them properly and how to harvest those seeds so that they can then have the seed year after year after year and then pass them down in their own family like my family's been doing. But because this is our 200th episode, I'm going to be giving away some packets of both of those seeds. So if you want some, I've not done one of these giveaways of the seeds. I think it's been a few years. It might even have been three years, and I don't know when I will do another one. Then you better make sure you go get entered into the contest at moleskinorris.com forward slash contest. One of the other prizes, because we're going to have multiple prizes because that's just more fun. Can I get an amen? Will also be one of my favorite seed saving books. And one of those is Seed to Seed. It's a little bit more technical than some of them, but it goes into such great depth on seed saving, all of the different kinds of seeds and how to do it with step-by-step tutorials, a great resource to have in your gardening library. And then the other one, it does cover seed saving as well, 
but it also covers a little bit more growing and it's written a little bit more in just, I don't want to say easier to understand, but just a little bit different language. Like you're kind of just talking like a backyard gardener to a backyard gardener. And that is the new vegetable growers handbook. So I'll have a link to those and you can check them out too, obviously at the contest page. And then with the blog post that is going to accompany this episode, I'll have individual resources as well. Okay. We got the housekeeping taken care of. You know you need to go into the contest and be subscribed to the podcast. Let's dive into talking about soil health. So really, the soil is the most important factor of your garden because you can have all of the other elements in place. So you can have the right temperature where it's warm enough and or cool enough, depending on what it is that you're growing. It's the right time of year. It's the correct growing zone. It's got enough space, meaning there's enough space for the roots, like all of those things. But if you have poor soil health, it really doesn't matter if you've got all those other factors in place, because it is going to impact that plant's ability to produce a good harvest and a large harvest and or sometimes any harvest if you have really poor soil health. So if your soil is in poor health, like I said, everything else can be in place and your garden will still suffer and you're not going to get a good crop and you're going to be dealing with a lot more issues. So soil health is the base of every garden or it should be on creating a really good, healthy, robust garden and increasing your harvest every year by continuing to improve your soil health. Now, In next week's episode, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, we're going to talk a little bit deeper depth into what actually organic means when it comes to certification and using certified organic methods. And soil health is part of that, which is why I bring that up. But just know that we're going to dive into that a little bit deeper in that specific part in next week's episode. But your soil health is part of organic gardening and building up and creating really healthy soil, obviously using organic and natural practices. So there's different elements that we need to look at when we are looking at our soil and its health. So your soil has major macro and micronutrient levels. Now, I know that sounded kind of scientific, so just stay with me for a minute, okay? I'm going to break it down, I promise. But the things that we really look at when it comes to our soil, and right now I'm talking specifics for an annual vegetable garden. But one of the things we look at now, this is not a nutrient, but it is important for your garden. And the reason that it's important is because it's going to help the plants be able to actually draw up the nutrients. And there's other things, but your pH level. The optimal pH range is 6.0 to 7.0 for most of your regular vegetable garden. So most of the plants, if you can keep your pH level between a 6.0 and a 7.0, they're going to do pretty good just across the board. Now, you can get really granular and look at, okay, what pH, for example, beets do better in a little bit more alkaline soil. So that would be a higher number, closer to the 7.0 is going to be more alkaline. The lower we go on the pH scale, of course, the more acidic it is. So like I said, things like beets, they do a little bit better. If you have more alkaline soil, then more acidic. But this is just kind of across the board. And so my vegetable garden pH level, sometimes I have it closer to a 6. Occasionally, I had it at a like 7.2, which was a little bit too alkaline. And we brought that back down to a 6. 
But both years, I was able to grow our beets just fine. That's one of the things we look at is our pH level. Up next is nitrogen. Now, nitrogen is important because that's what really helps your plants grow. And not just growth, but it also includes the chlorophyll and photosynthesis, which is the green plants or the leaves. It's their ability to take sunlight and to create that food for itself from carbon dioxide and water. And then it uses the chlorophyll to create oxygen, which is great for us, right? As a byproduct. So having enough nitrogen helps with the growth and it also helps the plant to do these other things that it needs to do in order to be healthy. Now, when we're talking nitrogen, which if you have not signed up, you guys, for the Gannett Gardening Workshop, you got to get yourself registered. It's going to all kick off on October 2nd, coming up soon. But we are going to be diving into really in depth into, and it's totally free, all online and totally free, starts October 2nd. Get yourself registered, melissakinorris.com forward slash garden workshop. But we'll really be diving into, of course, soil testing and amending your soil, building up the soil using cover crops, crop rotation, companion planting. Like we're going to be getting into all of the facets of healthy soil, but I'm going to be covering some of them here. But part of the what made me, well, one, I want you to sign up for it because it's going to be amazing. You're going to get so much information that's going to help you grow a healthy and robust garden at home. But when it comes to nitrogen, we do need to have a good nitrogen level so that the plants can grow. And all plants need nitrogen to some level or another. But some plants require more nitrogen than other. And if some plants, in particular your root crops, but also even sometimes like your tomatoes, if they have too much nitrogen, then you'll get a lot of lush green growth, but you're not going to get very much actual fruit. So this can oftentimes will happen with people when they're growing tomatoes. They get all kinds of leaf. I mean, these suckers are like vining out all over the place, but they're not actually getting the flowers and the flowers aren't producing fruit, which can be a little bit of a a pollination issue, which tomatoes are self-pollinating. So it's just usually they need a little bit of uh, wind and or the temperatures are too high and they're not wanting to set. But it can also be a sign that your nitrogen levels are too high you're just getting a ton of lush, pretty green growth, but you're not getting any tomatoes. So that is where crop rotation comes in to make sure that we're maintaining a really good nitrogen level for specific crops and following them in a certain order, which is why I mentioned you want to sign up because we're going to be going into crop rotation in much more depth than that inside the organic gardening workshop. So you're going to want to make sure you're there. But we do need to have nitrogen. So that's one of the first things that we look at when we're creating soil health. And these are the main, I'm going to go through 13 of them. We just hit the first one, pH level, not a nutrient, but we need to know it's there, and nitrogen. Up next, we've got phosphorus, potassium, calcium, magnesium, boron, sulfur, organic matter. We're going to come back to number nine, organic matter. Zinc, manganese, which I always have a hard time pronouncing that one copper and iron. Now, these levels are important because if they're too low, then they can be detrimental to our plants. And if they're too high in some instances, then they can also, it's kind of like Goldilocks and the three bears, right? You really want these levels to be just right, which is why I really encourage doing a soil test, which you can go back to episode number 135, where I talk about having a soil test done. And we'll be covering that as well in the organic gardening workshop. 
But these are kind of your main major macro and micronutrient levels that if they are right and in your soil, then pretty much everything that you're going to be planting is going to have the base that it needs for you to grow really good healthy crops. But what we need to come back to, because not only do you need to have these macro and micronutrients, but we need to talk about organic matter. So with our soil, we obviously, you don't want to have really super sandy soil because it can't hold the water and the roots, obviously they need water. And if every time you put water or maybe you're doing a liquid organic fish fertilizer or a compost tea or something like that, It doesn't stay in the soil really long enough for it to be absorbed. And then also the plants are going to dry out really fast and they do need sufficient water in order not only for the plant not to die, right? For it to not shrivel up and become too dry. But water is the mechanism that a lot of the roots will be pulling these different nutrients into the plant in order for it to use it, especially calcium. So a lot of times people will experience blossom and rot on their tomatoes and It can either be an indication that you do not have sufficient calcium in your soil, but oftentimes, which is where a soil test comes in really handy, because then you know if the soil test told you you had enough calcium and you're experiencing blossom end rot, it's not your lack of calcium in the soil, it's the way that you are watering. So having soil that has good organic matter in it is very helpful for the soil to hold on to the water and not become either too compacted or too clay-like where you just have a ton of standing water because that's not good either. Or on the flip side, you've got really sandy soil and everything just goes through it and dries out. So some of you, I almost feel bad saying this, are like me and where we live in the Pacific Northwest, which I am in Skagit County in Washington State, Eastern Skagit County, because we're up in the foothills. And just for a little bit of reference, if you're not familiar very much with Washington, Most people know where the Canadian border is, and they know where Seattle is, and then they know where the North Cascade Mountain Range is. So I am about smack dab in the middle between Seattle and the Canadian border. And so if you were looking at Seattle, you're going to go north, and then you're going to go east. But I'm still on the west side of the Cascade Mountain Range. But just as you start to climb up into the passes, we're about mm, probably about 500, maybe 550 feet above sea level in the foothills. We are very blessed where I live to have excellent soil. Now, in the bottom part of our homestead, and the reason I'm sharing this with you is going to make sense. The bottom part, we actually have like a drop off. And like four or 500 years ago, the river actually used to run through our bottom portion of our pasture and the bottom portion of our property. The reason I share that is because we still have quite a bit of sand and silt in that area of our homestead. So we do have it as pasture but I don't grow any of my garden and stuff there. And of course, there is some topsoil. We've got trees. I got blackberry vines like no tomorrow. We just keep constantly chopping those things back and keeping them mowed back. I've tried goats and they could not eradicate them. The pigs do pretty well, but they just are a noxious... They're technically a noxious weed here because they are so invasive. So we do our best to keep them managed, but they grow just fine in the sandy soil. But we have had enough topsoil over those 400 years or so that we can grow grass and some different trees, but it does dry out faster. But then you come up on the top shelf, which is where we have um, our house and all of my fruit trees and berry plants and all of our you know main infrastructure here, that type of thing. And we don't have the sand. We have really, really awesome 
soil naturally. Now, I do add compost, which we're going to be talking about, and I do maintain the health of it. But I was not starting from really rocky or really clay-based soil. But I know some of you are. And so I want you to know that you can definitely build that up and use organic matter and get an increase of organic matter into your soil. And it's going to improve your soil health. So it is doable. Um, But I just kind of wanted to preface that so that you knew what I was working with. So how do you increase the organic matter? Well, There's actually multiple ways that you can increase the organic matter in your soil, but probably the most common and one of the most easiest is going to be doing compost. So a lot of people will do a large backyard compost so that they can add that every single year to their soil. And that is what we do. So I've got my compost pile and I add compost every single year to my garden soil, as well as my container plants. So I've got I kind of call them permanent container plants because I do not remove the soil out of them every year. Um, I've got perennials growing in them. And so I add an addition of compost to that container plant every single year, as well as all of my different vegetable gardens and my perennial gardens as well. So like my asparagus, rhubarb, those type of things. So I'm going to add compost to those. So obviously compost is organic matter that's been composted down. So that is going to help your soil. Now, We're going to go into composting in depth inside the organic gardening workshop. So we're going to have a day on that in there where I've got some different videos that's going to walk you through composting, some different ways that you can do that and things like that. So if you're registered, know that that we're covering it in depth and I'm super excited for that. But you can do a big old compost pile. If you've got a large area and you're wanting to really build that up and you're like, I don't have the space to do a large compost pile or it's not going to provide enough compost for the amount that you need to add to the soil, there are commercial composters where you can actually purchase like a dump truck load or by the yard, you can purchase compost. So one of the things now I have not done that. So let me be really clear on that. I've not purchased that. Other times you have like different farms that will now I'm starting to talk manure and fertilizer here too, but that's also going to help your soil as well, especially with the nitrogen and can also be mixed in with your compost to help create organic matter and also provide, like I said, nitrogen and some of those other macronutrients to the soil. But when you're purchasing it, which is where I was going with this, if you're looking at some different farms, sometimes farms will do it, especially if you've got like chicken farms or different things like that, they will use the manure from whatever livestock they have and they will make compost and they will sell it. Or sometimes you can just reach out to those individual farms and just get the manure and then bring it to your property and mix it in with the browns and create a larger compost pile. But you can also just get compost that's already been done and then you can put that on your garden and you can purchase it in large amounts. Now, if you go to nurseries or garden stores, they'll often have large bags that's bagged of compost that you can purchase that are you know by the yard and that, that are a good size, like 50 pounds or whatnot. And you can get several of those depending upon the amount of soil, obviously, that you're needing to cover or to build up the organic matter. If I'm not doing it myself, because if I'm doing it myself, I have control of the ingredients that are going in and I know that I'm only getting things that are organic that I'm going to be putting into my compost pile. When you're purchasing it commercially, that's something that you want to ask them about. So I would add, if it says obviously certified organic on the bag or the company says they have organic compost and that it's organic and you don't have to worry about it. But if it doesn't say that, I would just ask them, question them, especially if it's a place where you're getting it brought in by the truckload. Where do you get all the stuff that goes into your compost? 
and you can go from there and ask them. Now, we have local sawmills around our area because we live in a, a wooded area. And they will often compost down. They'll use the tree bark and then they'll mix it with manure from other local farms of like chicken farms and stuff. And then you can purchase the compost from them. Now, I know that most of the trees in the forests around here, they're not spraying with stuff. So I feel pretty confident in using mulch from them. Um, I've gotten mulch for different flower beds and different things like that. I'm also really lucky that my husband works at a sawmill and I absolutely know his sawmill actually is a guitar mill. So they saw up the guitar tops and bracewood for guitars. So they do tone woods. And I know that those trees have not been treated with anything. So I get my sawdust from them. So if you've got different mills around where you live, and I know this is going to depend on your area of the country, then you can look at getting some mulch and sawdust and bark and different things like that. And oftentimes, even though it's not certified organic, it's stuff that's not been treated with anything or it's been grown with organic practices. So definitely a route that you can take. But to build up the organic matter in your soil, obviously, like I said, compost is a great way. I don't think you can go wrong. I put an application of compost on my garden soil every single year, but it's adding in organic matter. This can also be accomplished with doing cover crops. And another easy way that you can do this is to take the crops that you have been growing, provided they did not have any signs of disease. So if you had anything like blight or downy mildew, powdery mildew, any type of bacterial infection and or fungus infection on the plant, then you do not want to leave it in your garden. And you definitely don't want to work it into your compost or into your garden soil. You want to remove any affected plants and or leaves. But oftentimes, I don't have disease in the majority of my plants. And so what you can do is at the end of the garden season, you can simply chop those down. And anytime you are doing compost or anything like that, the smaller you chop up the pieces, the faster they can be consumed by all the awesome microorganisms that create our compost and break that down. And sometimes it's worms. That you, if you're doing uh, vericomposting and that type of thing, or depending upon the temperature of your compost pile, if it is composting hot, then the worms will usually move out and the insects, because it's composting so quickly that it's the micro or the different bacteria is actually feeding on it. But if it's at a lower temperature level, then you'll see the worms in there that we like to see the earthworms as a sign of really good soil. You'll see them in there. And then you're also, it might not be an actual vericomposting because in my compost pile, I have worms and I have worms in my regular garden soil as well, even though it's not technically where I have just like a worm farm where I'm doing vericomposting, which is the worm castings or worm, it's worm poop. Let's just call it what it is. Okay. But it does sound nicer if you say, if you say it the other way. So you can choose in the fall or whenever those plants die back and they're done producing, then you can just cut them down and you can use a hoe. You can go through and just do a quick top surface till if you like. Some people prefer to not use a rototiller at all. Then you can just use like a scythe or a hoe and you can just kind of roughly chop that up. Uh, Like I said, the plant matter that's not diseased. And then you can just leave that on the top of the soil and then it will break down over the fall and the winter months. And then you just work it back into the soil come spring. And that can be an easy way to add organic matter into your existing garden. Now, there are more ways that you can add organic matter in and you can actually improve your soil. So we will talk about those in next week's episode. And also, 
if because I'm pretty sure I've said it like five times during this episode, if not more. We'll be going over it in a lot of great depth with Inside the Organic Gardening Workshop because I really want you to have good, healthy, organic soil so that you have really good, healthy plants because so many of the diseases and the pests that can befall our vegetable and or our fruits, but our garden, if the plant's really healthy to begin with, which if you have really healthy soil, you're going to have really healthy plants. One, it won't even really come down with anything, or if it does get hit by a disease or and or a pest, it's able to bounce back really quickly so that you don't notice as much devastation or crop reduction, that type of thing. And it just makes your life so much easier when it comes to the garden if everything, the whole base of it is good and healthy from the beginning. So that's my goal for you guys and why we're going to be spending more time on this topic and in next week's episode as well. Okay, go register for the workshop, go enter the contest, make sure that you are subscribed so that you don't miss any of the new episodes as they come out. And I cannot wait to be back here with you next week. Okay, bye for now. Thank you.